Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on this week's program, archaeological evidence that native Floridians traded with the Mississippian culture about 1,000 years ago. That kind of Mississippian world's delineating groups who are intense amaze agriculturalists, and the groups here weren't, but they were clearly involved in interaction networks and trade with them. Letters from Florida's Second Seminole War and the cowboy poetry of Doyle Rigdon. We never got put in with the cattle history and the cattle drives, and everybody grew up watching westerns, not Florida movies. That and much more ahead on Florida Frontiers. About 1,000 years ago, agricultural communities were established in what would become the southeastern and midwestern United States, and what is called the Mississippian culture flourished. Dr. Keith Ashley is an archaeologist and research coordinator at the University of North Florida in Jacksonville. Dr. Ashley's research is demonstrating a link between native Floridians and the thriving Mississippian culture. Yeah, it, it probably sprang to life at about 900 to 1000 AD. And what it is, it, Mississippian world is kind of a term that we've superimposed as archaeologists on the landscape of the past. And basically what was going on within the Mississippian world, these were chiefdom level uh, groups. Uh, meaning that they had uh, institutionalized inequality. They had chiefs who controlled in more than one village. Uh, they were involved in intensive maize agriculture, taking advantage of the alluvial uh, floodplains. Uh, they were involved in these far-flung trade and exchange networks, and they had these large mound complexes with uh, platform mounds that probably were the uh, platforms for chiefly residents. When looking at a map of the Mississippian world, peninsular Florida is excluded. However, archaeological evidence uncovered by Dr. Ashley demonstrates that Native Americans living in northeast Florida were part of an extensive trade network that extended to present-day St. Louis. Yeah, they were definitely involved in the area. It's not a closed system. Uh, you know, usually they're marked off because they weren't intensive maize agriculturalists. So that kind of Mississippi world's delineating groups who are intensive maize agriculturalists. And the groups here weren't, but they were clearly involved in interaction networks and trade with them. In addition to growing maize or corn, 
The Mississippian cultures were known for their construction of platform mounds on which they would build houses, temples, and burial buildings. The largest chiefdom of the Mississippian world had a ceremonial complex at Cahokia, located near present-day Collinsville, Illinois, across the Mississippi River from St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Ashley. What we see here is that there was a series of chiefdoms, these, these kind of regional communities throughout the southeastern United States. And the largest one, especially early on in the Mississippi, Mississippi period, was Cahokia. Uh, Cahokia probably uh, sprang up about 1,000 A.D., and then by 1250, it's into the climb. By 1300, it's gone. Okay, but in its wake, what you see are a lot of other kind of rival chiefdoms that sprout up throughout the area. Macon Plateau is also another early mound complex, and it's in the uh, Okmulgee area of Georgia. So you see these, these um, uh, chiefdoms rise and fall throughout the Mississippian period. Sometimes they become much larger. Uh, they group together. Other times they just break down. So it's a really dynamic landscape, and mounds were a big part of these regional centers. Dr. Ashley says that the St. John's culture of northeast Florida roughly coincides with the Mississippian world. The St. John's period begins about 500 A.D. and continues until European contact 1,000 years later. They're fisher hunter, fisher collectors, hunters, uh, those types of things, uh, so that they are just uh, living off the marsh, living off the estuarine resources. But what happens, there seems to be um, uh, these larger interaction networks that had been uh, really viable early on are kind of in this period of lull, and then they pick up again. And when they pick up again, the people in northeastern Florida really kind of gravitate to it and become part of it uh, because I think they have a resource that people in the landlocked areas of Alabama, Georgia, uh, Missouri want, and that's shell. Archaeologists have a love-hate relationship with Clarence B. Moore. In the late 1800s and early 1900s, Moore documented some significant archaeological sites in Florida, but like most explorers of his generation, his methods of excavation were often quite destructive. Moore did much of his work in the Jacksonville area. Yeah, I think you're exactly right with Moore. There's a love-hate relationship. I think everyone really kind of respects him because people at that time weren't writing. He would go back and he would write up and produce and publish the works that he did. So we at least have that information. Uh, no, he didn't use the standards we use today. But when he came into the Jacksonville area, he was just trying to find mounds to excavate. So he excavated the... Uh, uh, the Grant Mound and the nearby Shields Mound. And from those, he really uncovered these spectacular artifacts. A lot of them are made of copper or they are covered with copper, uh, mica, galena, all types of uh, minerals that are coming from these far-flung areas of the southeast or the broader eastern North America. As Dr. Ashley explains, unique copper artifacts have been discovered along the periphery of the Mississippian world, including in northeast Florida. What is it, these uh, small uh, small little earpieces, um, uh, maybe a couple of inches in size, and they look like a face. They kind of look like a face, but they would have had a long nose protruding from them. And so far, we've only found seven complete pairs of those in copper in the entire United States. And all of them, we believe, are manufactured at Cahokia. So I think three of the pairs have been found in the Cahokia, at least the American Bottoms area. The other are in these areas that are peripheral to the Mississippian world, one in Wisconsin, uh, one in Spiro in Oklahoma, one in Gagin in Louisiana, and then Grant Mound in Jacksonville. So it's just interesting that their distribution is right there on the edge of the, of the Mississippian world. So although archaeologists exclude peninsular Florida from the Mississippian world because native Floridians did not grow corn, the copper artifacts discovered in Jacksonville demonstrate interaction between Native Americans who were very distant geographically. Yeah, some have argued that maybe these, um, these masks, these long-nosed mask earpieces, are, are kind of uh, gifts that are given to these um, groups on the periphery because they are wanting to strike up a relationship uh, with them, Cahokia is. And so they're part of these alliance or adoption kind of ceremonies that seals them 
as maybe uh, exchange partners or, uh, or allies somehow. Dr. Ashley has expanded on the information gathered by Clarence B. Moore in Jacksonville, discovering distinctive pottery and other artifacts that further support the idea of Native Floridians interacting with their neighbors far to the north. Clarence B. Moore dug in the Indian mounds, and so we're not digging in any mounds at all. So we wanted to go to the village areas near the mounds to see where they're living. And we did find one area within about 50 meters of the mound that was really, we think, a special area. Uh, we think they were feasting there and throwing the remains of feasting away. We think that's where they were probably probably preparing uh, the bodies for burial. Uh, we think that they were preparing the um, uh, the colorings for the sands that were part of the layers they used to build the mound. Uh, we think they were uh, crafting the really um, uh, fancy uh, regalia and pieces that they may have worn during the rituals and also pieces that they're going to be putting into the mound to attend uh, kind of the people on the into the afterworld. A lot of times we think these mounds may really be shrines to their ancestors. They're kind of these visual edifices that are, that are kind of a daily reminder of their community, of their history, uh, their tie to the land. Additional evidence of trade between the Midwestern Mississippian Ceremonial Center of Cahokia and the natives of Northeast Florida is the discovery in Jacksonville of tools unique to Cahokia. We found these small little points, and they're called Cahokia Side Notch Points. Uh, one of them was found in Mount Royal, which is now near Lake George, but we also found one in Kinsey's Knoll, which is right near Shields Mound in the Jacksonville area. And we had archaeologists from Cahokia look at it, and they told us that, that yes, this is a Cahokia point. It would look like you know, any point they would find at Cahokia, they believed it was made out of a Burlington church, which is a, a church that's from the American Bottoms area, so it's not a local Florida church. Uh, so we have those. We have another, um, which are called these biconical ear spools, which are kind of these cone-shaped ear spools that were covered in copper. Uh, very similar versions have been found at this site called Booker T. Washington site in Illinois, which is near Cahokia, also been found in Oklahoma. So we have some other kind of copper-covered artifacts that are real similar to ones that we find in the Cahokia area. In between the St. John's Culture Indians of Northeast Florida and the Mississippian Culture Indians of the Southeast and Midwest was a pocket of hunter-gatherers that also had contact with Northeast Florida residents about 1,000 years ago. Well, about 1,000 A.D., uh, you had the Jacksonville area with the Mill Cove Mound Complex, and then we had... Um, Macon Plateau, which was really the closest Mississippian center to them, and then beyond Macon Plateau would have been Cahokia. Uh, but what's interesting is between Macon Plateau and the Mill Cove complex in northeastern Florida, there's this group of hunters and gatherers, and they make a distinct type of cordmark pottery that we called Akmogi cordmark. And we find it on St. John's two sites in the Jacksonville, Florida area. So uh, it makes up anywhere from 2 to 10% of site assemblages. So we noticed a similarity. So we had... Um, uh, University of Missouri do some instrumental neutron activation analysis, and basically it's a chemical procedure to look at the chemical breakup of the clays that were used to make the pots. And what we found out is some of the Akamogi pottery that we find in Jacksonville, Florida, is actually coming from uh, South Central Georgia. It is coming from the Akamogi area. Others, however, is being made out of local clays, uh, but it's identical. Uh, we can't tell the two apart. The only way that they can be shown to be different is, um, is through chemical analysis. Uh, so we are thinking that maybe uh, female potters who learn how to make Akmolgi pottery marry into St. John's communities in Jacksonville, and they bring that their natal pottery technology with them, and it's allowed to continue in the St. John's villages. Dr. Keith Ashley is an archaeologist and research coordinator at the University of North Florida in Jacksonville.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Established in 1856, the Florida Historical Society is the oldest existing cultural organization in the state. Our headquarters are at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. We operate the Florida Historical Society Press, manage the Rossiter House Museum, host the Florida Public Archaeology Network East Central Region, and much more. To support our many educational outreach initiatives, like this program, please become a member of the Florida Historical Society. Just go to our website at myfloridahistory.org and click on the Join Now button. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features historian James Cusick. We often hear that people in the colonial period were illiterate, unable to either read or write. While this was certainly true, we should not exaggerate. By the 18th century, there were many well-educated people living in Florida. In fact, the middle and merchant classes often spoke, read, and wrote in several languages. So did the military officers, who made up a significant part of the population. Here is a sample of the books that could be found in the library of Colonel Jose Maria de la Torre, commander of the Cuban Infantry Battalion, stationed in Florida from 1807. A Compendium of Works on Natural History by Georges-Louis Leclerc, Comte de Buffon. Don Quixote de la Mancha by Miguel de Cervantes in six volumes. The Commentaries of Julius Caesar in two volumes. Principles of Geography by Lopez in two volumes. A General Dictionary of the English Language by Thomas Sheridan in two volumes. A French and English Vocabulary and a map of the Kingdom of Spain. University of Florida historian James Cusick. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers. Janie Gould has this look at a book of letters written from Florida during the Second Seminole War. When two sisters moved from New Hampshire to Florida, they arrived on the eve of the Second Seminole War in 1835. Florida was a dangerous remote frontier with a population of about 70,000. The sisters, Corinna and Ellen Brown, wrote hundreds of letters home during their 15 years in Florida. James Denham studied the sisters' letters and used about 300 of them in a book, Echoes from a Distant Frontier. The conditions of the territory were extremely volatile, and while they lived just below present-day Jacksonville on the St. John's River, they were very much at risk. What did they express about their feelings about being in Florida, about the dangers, about the hardships? What did they express? Well, remember these two ladies were from Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and they were not at all ready for what they experienced, even though they were very eager to come. But they really had no idea about the frontier, or America's southernmost frontier at that point, of right. course. They're writing their experiences, I would say, almost weekly to their relatives in the north. Did they express misgivings about having come to Florida? Not really. They seem to be very glad to be out of the cold north, and they're very open to the adventure. Interestingly, they're very critical of the settlers that they confront. They're well-to-do ladies, not rich, but they're very well-read. They read all the literature of the day, and of course they find it in the Florida frontier. It's very hard to obtain. I bet. But 
What did they say about s- some of the settlers who you said they confronted? Well, the, they are very disparaging toward these settlers. The term they give to the settlers was a term of derision to them, but in later years, and also my own thinking, is not a form of derision at all, and that, of course, are crackers. Right. They poke fun at the crackers, and to them, they were very unsophisticated folk. Like many northerners who come to Florida, they really didn't quite understand their way of life. Or their accents, maybe? Certainly their accents, certainly their points of view. They live with their aunt for a short time, but then they have access to the only really sophisticated society of the time, St. Augustine. They love St. Augustine. There they could meet very sophisticated population of West Point soldiers, for example. There were also other New Englanders that lived in St. Augustine. In Jacksonville, the sisters lived uncomfortably close to the warfare. In St. Augustine, one of them saw the famed Seminole chief Osceola, but not in battle. They witnessed firsthand and experienced the terror associated with Indian warfare. They witnessed people being killed and also the plantations of people being burned. Corinna Brown was in St. Augustine the day that Osceola was brought in chains. She offers her own observation about what she witnessed and what she thought of Osceola. It's a very poignant commentary about the fact that he was sinned against, but she still could not really think of him in any way other than just being, as she calls him, a dirty Indian. So she wasn't really sympathetic to him? She was and she wasn't. I would say that she was very ambivalent about him, but yet she understood the complexity of the situation. And of course, for her, immediately, and for her friends, he was responsible for many, many deaths. In a letter describing Osceola, Corinna Brown referred to him as his worship. It's a kind of a 19th century phrase. She was being sarcastic, I guess. It's hard for me to say. It's not an unusual phrase when people are talking in a personal way about someone. There were many phrases, Latin phrases, also phrases from Dickens or from Thackeray. These women were very well read. James Denham is director of the Lawton Child Center for Florida History at Florida Southern College. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Shut out 
In the 1950s, singer and actor Roy Rogers was the popular personification of American cowboy culture. Today, poet and cattleman Doyle Rigdon keeps Florida's cowboy culture alive. Bill Dudley has more. When a bull throws up his head, your blood begins to race. He pulls out and then starts to chase. The adrenaline's a-pumping as you fly across the ground. The horse's hooves beating speed and cadence is on the earth they pound. Pegged out, as fast as you can go. Jumping obstacles and dodging diller holes. Closer and closer, homed in on your prey. When you see your buddy... Okeechobee poet and storyteller Doyle Rigdon at the 2007 Florida Folk Festival. Rigdon lives the life he talks about. He's a working cowboy for a large cattle operation in south-central Florida. It's not always a romantic job. Most of it's just hard, everyday, grimy work. The, the romance really come about from dime novels and movies. But much of Rigdon's poetry is designed to enlighten outsiders and city dwellers about an industry that began nearly five centuries ago with the first Spanish colonies. Most of the time I'm talking to people who have little, if any, knowledge of our way of handling cattle, of our history in here in Florida. We never got put in with the cattle history and the cattle drives, and everybody grew up watching westerns, not Florida movies. Cowboy poetry is part of a tradition with roots in the songs and stories told around the campfires by the men who worked cattle in the West. But Florida's cattle traditions, at least a hundred years older, involve different techniques and different jargon. And we use our own terms when we're talking cracker talk. We cow hunt long hours round shipping time, cause out in the scrub, cows are hard to find. We use cow whips to call our dogs or signal other men, or to pop a fighting mad cow while we're driving to the pen. Because cattle culture in Florida is different from the culture out west, Doyle has taken that difference, some of those differences, and put them into to poems. Folklorist Bill Mansfield. Putting something in verse lifts it up a little bit higher. When you speak in rhyme, in poetry, it adds emphasis to what you're saying. I've seen the west, and sure, it's rough, but let those cowboys come down here and see if they're tough enough to work all day in sugar sand cow pens. The heat and humidity hot enough to purge sins or fight mosquitoes and hordes thick enough to kill cattle or race breakneck through a hammock and try to stay in the saddle. The Nevada buckaroo on the high desert all day wouldn't stand much of a chance chasing cows in the callaway. Where the sawgrass is taller than a six-foot man, he'd have to relearn everything to make a hand. And those mountain country cowboys with their highlands so grand would be at a loss in our wet and wild hammock land. Down here we depend more on cur cowboys. I wrote that poem because I'd read a poem by Wallace McCray, and in it had the line, the west where the true cowboys dwell. And in a fit of pique, I wrote that poem in five minutes. Kind of a rebuttal to his. More people have become aware of cowboy poetry in recent years through performers like Baxter Black, as well as poetry festivals held around the country. Doyle Rigdon's poems celebrate the open spaces and the palmetto scrub, the wild creatures, and the beauty of Florida's natural world. They're all about respect for the old Florida cowmen and their traditions in a world that's changing. I see these places my granddaddy showed me where you'd never believe a cow ever set foot, and yet it was all pines and palmettos when he was a boy, and it's all concrete and steel now. ...through the air and lands true, while your buddy wishes he'd caught him and not you. You pull up and wait for the jerk, and you think to yourself, man, I love this work. He wants to take his experience and put it into verse so that it not only describes what he does, but gives you a sense of how it feels, the emotional 
content of what he's doing. And I think that's what any good poet would want to do. I've oftentimes thought about the different things that we get to see and hear in our everyday work that most people don't ever get to see. And I was patching fence one evening, and I just got listening to the crickets, and I thought about out on the fence line, the stillness enters my mind as the crickets sing their goodbyes to the setting sun. The occasional cry of a far-off cow, I can almost see them now. The Spanish conquistadors, amazed at the land, that has now become too populated by man. The wind blows through the trees with a slight passing breeze. This is the real Florida, its home, far from the cities where thousands roam. This is Florida the way it should be. Peace, quiet, the cows, the fence, and me. Cowboy poet Doyle Rigdon. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us here again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, where you can listen to archived editions of this program, find out about upcoming events like our annual meeting and symposium, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.